Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Fearless Paranoia podcast, where we are decrypting and making easier, just making simpler, making usable the information of cybersecurity uh, so that what you hear and what you see and what goes on around you is something that you understand and can make use of in making yourself safe, making your business safe, and protecting your clients, your customers' data. I am Brian, the cybersecurity lawyer. And I'm Ryan, and uh, and I do cybersecurity. Yeah, basically, I just listen to him, in case you're wondering. He's smarter than me. That's the way it works. When you're trying to understand a certain concept, oftentimes there's nothing better than an effective example, you know, something in real life that shows exactly the right way or the wrong way to do something. It's probably because it gives us a tangible, real-world example of things that can and do happen, thereby giving us behavior to emulate or behavior to avoid. Today, we're going to focus on that, and we have a story from one of the most famous or some might say infamous companies around the world when it comes to issues of security and let's just say it what it is internal hubris uber hey i use uber i use lyft i think it's a great service that's provided it's something that cab companies could have provided for a long time don't am i attacking uber i am not i don't like some of their practices i think their drivers should be employees regardless it's a better system all that said we're gonna be talking about the breach that occurred at uber that was publicly disclosed in September of 2022. Unlike most data breaches, we're not talking about customer information being leaked online or questions about source code. We're actually talking about a penetration that went much deeper into Uber's system. Uber took a big chunk of its internal communications and engineering systems offline as a result of a breach that appeared uh, to have compromised a whole slew of Uber's internal systems. Apparently that hack is, at least as is being reported, is the result of a social engineering attack that was able to successfully override security measures that included two-factor authentication and through the access to one employee's account was able to gain extensive access within the company. One analyst said they pretty much have full access to all of Uber. Uber's employees were instructed not to use their internal messaging system. This is one of those times where it's simply better to listen to the person who knows more. And Ryan, give our listeners an idea of what we're talking about here. Well, I want to start off by just throwing at least one small bone out to some of my colleagues on my side of the fence at Uber, mainly to their cybersecurity team, who was most likely like a lot of other enterprises, a lot of startups, and a lot of other tech businesses, probably poorly funded, probably severely understaffed, and most likely under-equipped to probably do their job. Let me echo that as well. If anything, this is probably a great lesson for a lot of businesses. Everybody should take the moment to really just kind of understand exactly what happened, the level of simplicity that was involved, and understand that this is absolutely something that could happen to anybody with not a ton of effort, to be honest, because there's always going to be a gap. There's always going to be a hole somewhere. It's just a matter of really finding it and finding a way to exploit that. So let's dig in real quick. So Uber started with a couple of things. There's numerous different blogs out there that have listed the entire timeline of what they think exactly occurred with Uber. Here's the major takeaways that I've got, and we'll kind of dig into some of these. The first one is, is that this was an 18-year-old kid, and it was one person. This is not some super hacker from the KGB, from North Korea, from the NSA. This was Johnny Jameson from down the street somewhere who is uh, just getting interested in... It's Matthew Broderick from War Games. Yeah, he's, it's just a kid. Since 2020, since the great era of COVID, we have seen a lot more interest. People get locked up and they've all got computers now and people have started to get more and more interested in these type of things because they were just, they were forced in front of things like a computer for a good period of time. We've seen a lot more people start entering 
appearing in the space, especially on the other side of the fence, which is scary. But you hope that eventually they will start to find some opportunities over in this space as well and uh, you know, hopefully draw some back to the light eventually. But anyways, this is an 18-year-old kid that really was what kind of precipitated a lot of this. And it started out with social engineering. Sorry to interrupt, but just to make sure our audience is on the same page, can you walk us through what happened? Oh, sure. So, I mean, this started as this kid reaching out, went on to LinkedIn, found employee information, found a cell number, and texted an employee and said, this is a guy from your IT team. I need this privileged password. And the user handed over the password. So you started by social engineering, effectively a smishing attack. I hate that term, but it's what it is. It's SMS phishing. It's text phishing. And it was a non-multi-factor password, or it was a abused multi-factor password because it was a successful compromise. Uh, so regardless of whether there was multi-factor in the place, the password was successfully used to gain access to a Slack channel, which was used to contact other employees, and eventually procured access to a file share, an open file share on the system that held management scripts. Inside those PowerShell scripts were plain text passwords to service accounts that were then used to access... Always probably my, my favorite news story when it comes to a password breach. Well, it'd be like me having a post-it note with my master password on the thing right here behind my webcam just for you to, <laughs> to read, right? I mean, it was on an open file share that didn't require anything more than the compromised user credentials to get access to. That particular service account was used to access the primary password repository for the company. And that's where the keys to the kingdom lie. So now you've got all the passwords. And then there were... Proven access and screenshots to things like uh, Sentinel One terminal, to I believe like a Solar Winds Orion, like a system visibility and management tool, and a variety of other things. But uh, once you've got that level of access, once you've got the main password repo and all the passwords, it's it's basically game over. They would have had access to anything. Uber's lucky they got away with what they did, considering the level of access that was uh, that was granted. Well, not granted, but taken. What was what was taken? How much did they get? Do you know? I don't know if that was fully determined or disclosed. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it probably was determined. I don't know if it was disclosed. And I, from what I understand, I think the investigation with Uber is still ongoing too to determine if there was any additional activity. It sounds like the, the actor, the threat actor, was pretty forthright with everything. And so I think that they, they understand the full impact. It's so nice to find an honest thief now and again. And again, I don't think it was a thief from what I understand. Yeah. There was no ransomware. Again, there was no major attempt to like create data loss uh, for sale or for compromise or for publish or docs or anything like the malice was created probably by boredom curiosity honestly these are the kids that we should be out teaching that they need to get into cybersecurity. they need to flash some of the big cybersec money in front of them be probably a good thing because you could probably attract some of these kids and get them into actually doing some some legit you know legit work it harkens back to the time where the best way to get a job working for the the cyber divisions of the u.s military was to try to was to get past a certain level of hacking them. Yeah, but back in those days, there was a few handfuls of cybersecurity jobs across all of the major Department of Defense. Nowadays, I mean, armies, small armies of people would be required to fill those chairs, mm. and well over half of those chairs are empty. There's such a huge shortage, private sector, public sector, everywhere in cybersecurity, and so many more people lining up on the other side, which, again, is scary, but you hope that that'll take a turn, and hopefully somebody will find a way to, to harness some of that curiosity. So it's interesting that every step of this is a, it's a demonstration of how Uber's setup failed in doing what it should have done and almost provided a roadmap of what the hacker's next step should be. 
yeah, it was so many failures on so many levels, and I don't want to oversimplify them, but so many of those are basic posture, basic hygiene items in cybersecurity. Things like limiting access to stuff like a private share or a really privileged share, like one that has scripts with hard-coded service account passwords in it. That should be very limited. A standard user account should never get access to that stuff. Uh, stuff like user training to understand stuff like don't send passwords to a text message that comes to your phone, no matter who they tell you they are. Call them. Put it in a ticket. Get a hold of someone through you know your company's teams. Get them on a video to make sure it's actually somebody you know. Do something before you just kind of go, there you go, just hand over the keys. Multi-factor. Anyone that's not doing multi-factor in 2022, I'm gonna, I'm sorry, I'm gonna be brutal. You don't care about your business. If you're not doing something simple like making sure that all of your people have multi-factor, then you do not care about what is behind there because passwords are no longer good enough. The machines are better than we are. They're smarter than we are. They're faster than we are and they run 24 hours a day. Your passwords, no matter how long they are, are not gonna be good enough going forward in the future. You need to come up with strong, secure multi-factor. The sooner we can get to password lists, the better. If you got biometrics, hell, if you can afford YubiKeys, please go out and buy them, buy hardware tokens. They're not terribly expensive. They're, it might be for a big business because that's a big scaling thing, but stuff like that can absolutely decrease the activity of bad access to your accounts and secure your identity quickly. Even something like an authenticator on your phone. Just do simple things like that because it, it takes you away from being low-hanging fruit. All it takes is one password breach, somebody to publish that list on the internet, and that password you've got, it's done. And then if you reuse that, all those accounts are done. And they've got, again, they've got cameras looking for you nowadays. They've got printers testing at those accounts and those passwords. It's not people behind keyboards anymore. There's no armies. These are a couple handfuls of people that have amassed bot armies and are using this technology while it's videotaping your street and your driveway. It's also attacking Wells Fargo and it's scanning their systems. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience, Cybersecurity, and Data Privacy blog at www.resiliencecybersecurity.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. So beyond multi-factor authentication, what are some of the other big security screw-ups that you saw in this, I don't even want to call it breach or a hack, we'll just call it in this conflicteration? Well, the file share, the privileged file share being wide open, that should be very tightly locked down either, you know, at bare minimum to a secure group of privileged access users, more ideally to privileged access users using something like a secure privileged access workstation. So that that kind of directory has access from one IP, one single machine that's completely hardened and has all of its usage tracked. Because that'll prevent people from getting to those places where you have to hard code in a password. Or better yet, please go through and rewrite your scripts in a way where you don't need to leverage having the service account password in there. You can use some sort of certificate or some sort of secret or some sort of key that you can pass back and forth to securely enable that access without just hard coding in your passwords. And if you make a service account that has that level of access, limit it down to doing just the activity you need it to do. Don't like give it global admin or domain admin or anything stupid like that, because that right there is basically just handing over the keys. You might as well just like not even put the key underneath the mat, just set it right on top of the mat so when they show up, they can just get in really easy. Or you can leave it in the lock. That actually is another can be very convenient place to leave the key. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say the, the other really big one is, again, 
it comes down to least privilege. So if you have a password management system and you're an IT or your security team, the first thing you should make sure is that nobody on your team has access to all the passwords inside that repository. There's no business for anybody, no matter if it's the IT team, no matter if it's the security team, doesn't matter if it's the CEO, doesn't matter who it is. Nobody should have access to all the keys at any one given time. That's, I think, an important one. How does a small business handle that? Because to me, it strikes me that it, for a small business that might not be feasible, but also may not necessarily be desirable. Someone probably going to have to have access to a significant portion of the passwords, yeah? I mean, it depends on how small you're talking, right? I guess I was referring a little bit more to the enterprise level. If you're talking like a five or 10 person shop, you're most likely going to have quite a few. You're going to have a big over-delegation of privileges because you're going to have a lot of crossover and job duties also, which is going to make it really challenging to go least privilege in those kind of small environments, which is why in those type of environments, cybersecurity training becomes all that much more required because if they're going to have those levels of privileges and you're not going to have like a managed provider that's controlling that privilege on the back end, your people need to have an understanding of what the threats are out there nowadays and have to have some sort of like demonstration or at least a detailed explanation of what those threats look like, how they're growing, how they're attacking people and uh, how to deal with those because everybody's going to be a major point of compromise. Like in Uber's case, that one user's account that they got a hold of most likely didn't have a ton of privilege. But the fact that they had access to enough privileged areas to get an account that had it was really all it took. Lateral movement. The Slack account. That Yeah, that's what struck me is that they had access to an internal communication tool that allowed the hacker to essentially impersonate this employee, but to do so in a way that is, to me, seems, I mean, it's genius in how deviously underhanded it could be because what is Slack really meant to replace? Slack likes to say we replace emails and we replace meetings. In my opinion, for most businesses, the one thing universally that it replaces is the water cooler. Mm-hmm. Slack does replace a lot of these things in a lot of businesses, but in almost all cases, it replaces the casual meeting spot. And so now you've got this access to a spot where people are used to being more free with what they say and assuming that you are who you say you are without any additional you know, investigation. That's a huge, huge hole. And I'm amazed that that hasn't been a bigger story coming out of that, of that particular uh, situation. Yeah, and that's why, you know, again, you really have to get to your users, right? Because with systems, you can take on different approaches. You can audit things really closely. You can go zero trust and you can really get away from those like implicit trust you know, type of scenarios. Users are much, it's a much more challenging vector for them to like get away from, especially since we've moved to a more digital based era where we're talking over Slack, we're talking over Discord, over Teams, over all these different kind of remote collaboration tools. We miss that side of the water cooler of standing around in the little kitchen in the office, you know, and some people have gone back to that, but there's been a large chunk of the population that is you know, either still remote or has moved to permanently remote. And I think people, you know, people have historically just kind of always had that time. And with it not being there, it makes it more desirable to want to be comfortable in these newer scenarios that we're in now. And that Mm -hmm. desire, that need for humanity, for the human touch is like, has become a, a very exploitable thing. Not just the need to have it, but to have it, to be able to be vulnerable with another human being without entering in a code first. Yeah, and people prey on that. That's why grandparents with computers and smartphones are hugely vulnerable. 
they don't have typically a lot going on anymore later in life. You're not working as much. Your family interactions have started to kind of slow down a little bit more than at least when you had kids around. And so like you start to look for those opportunities. Some nice person calls you up on the phone and you start complaining about this machine that your nephew Johnny got you and you can't get into your email. And they say, oh, well, we'll help you out. We'll send you this link and, you know, let me on there and I'll help you figure it out. And a lot of times they might even go as far as to actually help you. They'll help you reconfigure your stuff to make sure it works better for you. They're building your trust. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a post for this episode containing links to all of the sources, research, and information that we have cited to. You can also check out our older posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I think one of my favorite of the ones you've told me about something like that was an Excel spreadsheet. A guy looking for an accounting template went on and found a template that did it's a very complex process it did exactly what he needed it to do which mm-hmm. is what made him completely blind to the fact that it also included a macro that embedded itself in the company's financial system it was on actually this piece of software it was on one of their community forums so it was on a legitimate forum it was a file that had been uploaded as a comment basically as a reply to some problem somebody had deep down i think it was a couple pages deep uh, but had not been probably scanned properly by whoever was running the forum and it was just sitting right there available for download because they had attachments must have been turned on in public in that forum because people are passing Excel spreadsheets with macros and things back and forth. That's just part of what they do mm-hmm. in this particular forum is find ways to manipulate data and do data analytics. So that's exactly what happened. They downloaded it, but this file was both the exact thing they needed and had been compromised to the point where it started producing malicious PowerShell commands in the background also. And so it was exactly everything that the poster wanted it to be also is was brought in it was run on a computer somebody needed macros they probably got some sort of administrative access and if they're logged in with a privileged account on their workstation that means that was probably compromised immediately and then from there if it's connected to a network it's going to start spreading out everywhere Mm -hmm. as quickly as it can and working to find additional points for lateral movement and compromise and we've got some amazing lessons here first of all your password is only as good as the secondary tool that you use to confirm your password or beyond secondary I remember that when this conversation first started, it was two-factor authentication. Within probably a year, everyone was saying, don't say two-factor anymore. It's multi-factor authentication because there's that. There's making sure that your authorizations are appropriate for the users, but also set up to be inappropriate for someone who takes over the user's access. Then you want to make it so that if someone does get access to that user's information, they are nothing but frustrated and stymied when they try to gain access to more than what that user should be allowed to have. And and that it records it and it logs it. Exactly. That keeps it maintained record of what their access and their attempted access is. You don't want to log in just that someone walked through a door. You want to log in how many times they tried to open that door when they punched the code in. In addition to that, making sure that your employees are trained adequately, appropriately, and in a way that they actually 
absorb, to follow and understand this complex world of cybersecurity and make sure that they understand they have a stake in it and they have the ability to be an amazing tool defending your company. Make sure they know that they can help, that they are empowered to do that. Are there any other key lessons that you think that this particular Uber hack has for small businesses? I think from the top down, education is key. Like you said, we need to get to the users and we need to train them. We do need to watch privilege as far as we can. We need to make sure that we're auditing all activity that's occurring in our network. And primarily, we need to make sure that if you're going to leave a password hard-coded somewhere, you need to limit what kind of access it has. Because if it can get into stuff like your main password repository and have access to all the secrets and stuff in there, you might as well just post the password on Pastebin and just be done with it and just let it happen because you'd already kind of rolled over at that point. So I still don't think anyone could quite hold a candle to Sony keeping their passwords in an unencrypted folder titled passwords. I'll be honest though, I'm, I'm not going to fault Sony. I'm not going to fault Uber. I feel for all their security teams because again, they're most likely in rough shape. But let's be honest, this has happened to a lot of people, a lot of huge businesses that had no business with stuff like this happening. Target's been there. Home Depot's been there. Equifax has been there. Everybody's been hit at some point. I think they're saying by the end of 2022, they expect that 60 to 70% of all businesses with a major online digital footprint will have probably faced some sort of ransomware or some sort of internal compromise. That is, of course, not to suggest that taking adequate steps isn't worthwhile or that people who fail to take adequate steps on the basis that either they feel they have more money than is needed to survive the fallout or just simple hubris, they don't, to a certain extent, deserve what's coming to them. And what is coming to them is potentially a considerable amount of pain over time, especially if they don't correct their mistakes. With people and bad decisions, eventually you'll either stop making bad decisions or you're just going to keep suffering the pain that comes attached to those. And in the world of cybersecurity, they're either going to shape up their practices, they're going to put proper dollars, they're going to put proper effort and proper people into places to get these gaps cleaned up, or they will continue to suffer this level of attack, this level of embarrassment over and over again mm. until people finally just completely lose faith and them all together. There is going to be one other Uber topic that we're going to talk about in the near future that I desperately, Ryan, want to get your take on because both you and I actually fall in our professional realms into shared professional space with one of Uber's ex-executives who is about to become a member of the incarcerated, a very, very specific and very sad story, to be perfectly honest, about the legal responsibility that a business might have when it comes to a cyber attack. And I definitely want to know your opinion on all of that, but that is going to have to wait for another episode here. I want to thank you all for joining us today on the Fearless Paranoia podcast. We hope you have learned some from Uber's pitfalls and errors here. Along with Ryan, I want to thank you all for joining us and be sure to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcasting systems and platforms. Tune into us again. You can check us out on our website, fearlessparanoia.com. I'm Brian. I'm the cybersecurity lawyer. I'm Ryan. Please keep your passwords long. Keep your factors as multi as you can and practice all the basics and we will get through the cybersecurity era together safely and come on the other end. All right, y'all. Thank you. See you next time.